become a co-heir. We are heirs with Christ, and that is good news. Amen? Amen. You take your hymns of grace and turn again to hymn 104, Come, Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Let's sing and worship the Lord together. Come, Thou Fount of Every Blessing, Tune my heart to sing Thy grace. Strains of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the time fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming love Hitherto thy love has blessed me, thou hast brought me to this place. And I know thy hand will bring me safely home by thy good grace. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger bought me with his precious blood oh to grace how great a debtor daily i'm constrained to be let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee prompt to wonder lord i feel it prompt to leave the god i love here's my heart oh take and seal it seal it for thy courts above Oh, that day when, freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Clothed in the blood-washed linen, how I sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransom soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. If you flip right over to hymn 174. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this short hymn, Give Me Jesus. How many of you know Give Me Jesus? Okay, two of you. So y'all going to really have to sing out, right? It's an easy song. Give me Jesus. You ready? In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, Give me Jesus, give me Jesus, give me Jesus. You may have all this world, give me Jesus. Oh, when I am alone, oh, when I am alone, Give me Jesus, give me Jesus, you may have all this world, give me 
Jesus. Oh, when I come to die, oh, when I come to die, oh, when I come to die, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You may have all this world. Give me Jesus. Amen. Be seated. Okay, this time, these wonderful young people are going to sing for us. shadows hold on to his ways with shield of faith against temptation's flaming So be still, do not be moved by the truth you learned in.
That was wonderful, wasn't it? Beautiful song. Well, thank Pastor Mark for, indeed, this opportunity of being able to preach the gospel, preach the good news. I love it. Thrilled to be here. Again, a great, happy, blessed Father's Day to all you dads. I want you to be prepared that we're going to turn to a number of selected scriptures. In fact, if you would, you can go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1. We'll share a few thoughts here by way of introduction. Before we look at the text, I want to read something to you that uh, bothered me deeply uh, this past week, this article I read. And this is the title of the article. America's crisis is a lack of fathers. That's the name of the article. America's crisis is a lack of fathers. As our country commemorates Father's Day this weekend, it is important that we recognize the millions of children throughout our nation who are growing up without their fathers. Data from the United States Census Bureau shows that nearly 18.5 million children grow up without fathers, which has in return led to the United States owning the title of the world's leader in fatherlessness. America is the leader. The article goes on to say there is, there is little doubt that America is experiencing an unprecedented fatherless crisis. Approximately 80% of single-parent homes are led by single mothers. 80% by single mothers. Therefore, leading to nearly 25% of our youth growing up without a father in the home. The staggering statistic has not only destroyed the nuclear family, but has devastated communities across the nation. For example, 85% of children and teens with behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. And over 70% of all adolescent patients in drug and alcohol treatment centers originate from homes without fathers. Shocking, isn't it? That might be surprising to you. I must admit I didn't realize it was that much percentage-wise. And as I think about that, thinking about this day that is designated as Father's Day, I think about that text that Pastor Mark referred to a moment ago, 1 Corinthians sixteen thirteen. Paul again was admonishing the church, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. I think it goes without saying that we realize that we're living in very dark days. But the encouraging part about that is that we know that we are the light and the salt of the earth. We represent Christ. We're his luminaries. We're here to make known the truth of the gospel concerning Christ. And quite frankly, that's the only reason we're here. I was thinking not long ago, I said, you know, Lord... Why don't you just take us on to heaven? Heaven's got to be better than this. And no sooner than I thought that, that in my mind I realized, well, we've got purpose in being here. Not only has our life been purchased by the blood, but our life has been purposed by the blood of Christ. That we're here to be luminaries and lights in a world that seemingly is dark that when we share the good news, we share the gospel, we preach the gospel, we live the gospel, we behave the gospel. And I've got a dear African-American pastor friend that I went to college with. He says, Brother Dave, 
There's two parts of the gospel, believing it and behaving it. I said, that's right, believing it and behaving it. And then when I think about, again, the things that are happening in our nation with all the seemingly confusion about gender, about family, about homes, about fathers, about mothers, about children, about the responsibility we all bear that when it comes to understanding that if we are a father and a mother, what that role assumes and what we must do as far as being Christians and believers in a home where we are mandated by God to teach our children to, again, understand the, the admonitions of the Lord to live their life for Christ and that parents would live as examples and influences for and to their children, but also in a nation that desperately needs Jesus Christ. I've often said this, and I believe this so much with all of my heart, that the greatest testimony that you could ever have in the earth is let the world see you obey God. Just let them see you live what you say you are. Let your behavior and your, your conduct go hand in hand in regards to who you, who you are, what you say you are, as far as a believer in Christ. And I was thinking, too, that if in fact this nation, I'm not going to say if it is, but I'm going to say since it is under God's divine judgment... And then even Peter made reference to the fact how that, that if judgment is to really begin, it must begin in the household of God. In 1 Peter 4.17, which is to say that if you and I are going to really have any impact and influence on a godless culture and society and a nation, man, we need to clean up our act. We need to get our thoughts together. We need to get our heart together. We need to be committed to the cause of Christ. We know that that judgment there is not condemnation because Romans 8, 1 says there is therefore now no condemnation of those in Christ. Praise God what you're guilty of and what the penalty for your guilt should be. Christ took care of that and provided justification and provided redemption and the perfect, the perfect impartation of his perfect righteousness that was given to us through Christ. When God looked at Christ on the cross, he saw you. He saw me. But since you're in Christ, when he looks at you, now he sees Christ. So in this judgment that must begin in the household of God, which is just another title or, or title or of words that speaks of the church... It's the same phrase that Paul used in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, where he says, I'm writing this to you so you'll know how one should conduct himself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. So the house of God is the church, the church of the living God, the church that Christ is building is the church we're talking about. But Peter said the time is here that the judgment and the, the very chastening and the very discipline of the Lord must begin in the house of the Lord. If the church is to be pure, if it's to be everything that God has said it would be and shall be, these things must happen in the church. So I'm thinking about all these things. I'm thinking about how that this issue with a father not being in the home, the issues of what's happening in our nation and other parts of the world. I mean, just this week, the SBC had their convention in Anaheim, California. I'm listening to it as I can, and I'm trying to pay as much attention to it as I can. And as I'm listening, I'm thinking... Did I really just hear that? Did they really just say that? Is that what the SBC has come to? 
Are we slowly but surely abandoning the sole authority of Scripture as the means by which we do everything when it comes to the church? It was in 2019 when it was brought to the floor that critical race theory would be adapted as an analytical tool to do church. I'm thinking, really? Critical race theory should be an analytical tool that we would use to do church? You mean the Bible needs to be improved upon? You mean God hasn't quite got it together? He needs our analytical creativity and our innovation that we wonder how has he made it so far without our cleverness and our wisdom and what we can add to what he has clearly given us in the word of God? Do you mean to tell me God has really failed? You mean to tell me God doesn't really know what he's doing? You mean to tell me God really needs our help to help him to get his act together? Is that what you're saying? Then I think about Romans chapter 1 as a picture of what happens when God lets a nation go. Clearly, you see it here, what happens when God lets a nation go. In fact, in Acts 14 verse 16, it says, In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way. Whereas the New King James Version says, all nations to walk their own way. The path that this speaks of here, that they take and go their own way, is all that have walked in or is walking in what is described here in Romans chapter 1. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This tells you clearly that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19 says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And then when you look down into verse 24, it says, "Therefore, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Why? Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. There you have it. How do you know when the judgment of God is upon a nation? What this says here, that giving them over, and in this case gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them, is because they exchanged truth for a lie. Is that a dangerous thing to do? Is that to be considered a very serious matter? How do you feel about that? How do I feel about that? When it comes to the truth, it is objective truth. We're not talking about a subjective truth. We're talking about a, an objective truth, which means whether you believe the Bible to be true or not has no bearing on whether it is or not. Because if you never believed it, if you never adhered to it, if you never embraced it, if you never even claimed it to be the the, the standard by which you live has no bearing on the fact that it's true because it is objective truth. We live in a day where relativism is perhaps more great than it's ever been. And relativism is just a fancy word that describes anyone who doesn't believe in what we call absolute truth. Many people today do not believe in an absolute truth. But the Word of God is the absolute truth because it is the very Word of God. It is the authoritative Word of God. It is indeed the inerrant Word of God. 
It is indeed the infallible word of God, and it is indeed the altogether sufficient word of God. And when you understand that and believe that, and you see that, and you embrace that, you realize that there is absolute truth. And when truth is determined by what you believe it is to be, which is relativism, in other words, what you believe to be true about your life when it comes to your, your preface of your sexuality, or when it comes to things that we know that are a direct violation or contradiction to the absolute truth of God's word, relativism says what you believe to be true about you is what truth is to you, and that's all that matters. And really what that implies is that when you come to that place and you believe that, you have indeed exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Folks, I remember the 60s and the 70s vividly. The decade of the 60s and the 70s, I remember very well. I remember it was November the 26th, 1963, that President Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. I was in the fifth grade. I remember it was in the afternoon after lunch when we found out. I remember teachers were crying. I wasn't really sure what was going on or what was happening. But they let us out of school early. We all got on our buses and we went home. And then I realized later that night what had happened. The President of the United States of America, President Kennedy, had been assassinated. And then it was in April the 4th of 1968 that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And I remember with that came the racial rioting back in the 60s. It was horrible. It was terrible. And then in June, the 5th of 1968, Robert Kennedy was assassinated by Sirhan Sirhan in Los Angeles, California. I remember all that vividly. Again, I remember the racial riots. I remember there were young men who refused to go to Vietnam, so they were burning their draft cards. And as they burned their draft cards, they were burning the American flag in the streets of the United States of America, again, rejecting the mandate to be drafted into the military and have as a possibility of going to Vietnam. I remember the hippie-free love movement. How many of you ever heard of the word hippies? I remember that. The hippie love movement. There was an outdoor event in 1965, or excuse me, 1969, in all names Bethel, New York, on about a 300-acre track of property, a farm in Bethel, New York. Now, Bethel in the Old Testament is the Hebrew for house of God. Gosh, isn't that strange that they would call that city where Woodstock was in 1969, where thousands upon thousands upon thousands of young people converged on that place to hear rock and roll music and do drugs and have their free sex and do what they did. They said the stench of human waste and the smell of marijuana was so strong that you couldn't hardly stand to be around it. It was just so repulsive. I remember those. I remember President Jimmy Carter. In fact, the first presidential election I ever voted in was for him. Why? He was from the South. He's from Georgia. And he was born again. So Christians wanted to vote for a born-again Christian. And I'm still thinking how he really got elected, but he did. We know the outcome of that. And I do remember the Vietnam War. I do remember President Nixon. Y'all remember President Richard Nixon? I remember in 1973 
the runaway inflation and the gas shortage. We had a gas shortage. Service stations were opened up only during a certain time of the day. And you were allotted so much gas. And if you didn't get there during that time, you wouldn't get gas because they would close the rest of the time. And then you know when they would open up and you better get there. But then again, in Florence where I grew up, I'm telling you, lines were as long as you could see people lined up trying to get into a service station to get gas. And people were just in a rage because it was 50 cents a gallon. <laughs> 50 cents a gallon that's highway robbery why would anybody charge that much for a gallon of gas I remember the Cold War with Russia and they were winning in many respects in that time and I, I remember vividly segregation in the South. I never could understand that. It was so hard to understand that if I was to go to a movie and my sister a movie on Saturday afternoon to see Old Western with Gene Autry and Roy Rogers and Gabby Hayes and those old Frankenstein movies and Dracula movies and all those kind of things that they had back in the day and I know you think I'm exaggerating, but I'm telling you the truth. It only cost a quarter for me and my sister to get in. My dad would give us 75 cents a week for allowance, so we had a quarter to get in. And I tried my best to spend all that 50 cents before I left that theater, and I couldn't. Had some money left over from 50 cents. But I never could understand. I would go up to a water cooler, and it would say, white only. I go to a bathroom, it say white only. Or I'd see another sink, it say it would say colored only. And then if people of color would come to the theater to watch the movie, they could never come through the front door, but they would have to go through a side door and come in and sit up in the balcony. It had nothing to do with anybody else that was there, especially if they were not African American. They were not even allowed to use the restrooms in the movie theater, but if they had to leave, they'd have to leave and go somewhere else and use it and come back, and they were hoping they could get back in to see the rest of the movie. I remember that. I remember, again, in the school system in Darlington County, when they begin to really enforce the laws of integration, how that it was such a mess, such a complicated thing. The KKK was in an uprival. It was big in Darlington County, turning over school buses, taking axe handles and breaking out windows. And so when I think about these things and I think about, again, all these things that I saw during the decade of the 60s and 70s and bringing that more now up to the time that we're living in now. The only thing that in some ways that's really changed is it's just on a larger scale. Not so much the integration and the segregation as much as the issues with, again, the things that we see here clearly in Romans 1 about how the people there dishonored their bodies and all the other things that accompany those things when you again exchange the truth of God for a lie and what you feel that you're liberated to do and you're free to do because there's no objective truth, there's only subject, so whatever makes me feel good, I'm going to do it because that's truth for me. So in this sequence of events here, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. 
And then when you look at verse 26, it says again, there's three times it says this, and God gave them over, and God gave them over, and God gave them over. Verse 25, 26, and 28, when God allows a nation to go its way, when God abandons that nation, verse 26 says there was degrading passions. Degrading passions. We know what this talk about. For the women exchange the natural functions for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman, the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. We see going from a place where, again, people dishonor their bodies. Maybe a sexual revolution because they exchange the truth of God for a lie, which leads into a revolution of, of homosexuality and lesbianism, which is clearly seen in this. And God's given them over to that. Exchange the truth of God for a lie, degrading passions. And then verse 28 says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper. A depraved mind. That is a mind that doesn't function properly. A mind that cannot really discern between what is right and what is wrong. What is truth and what is false? It's like Isaiah said in chapter 5, talking about how that woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine, so forth and so on. In other words, He's saying here they'll call evil good and good evil, substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. That's everything that a depraved or a reprobate mind will do. It's a mind that doesn't think properly. It's a mind that doesn't function properly. It's a mind where, again, if you believe that you're a girl, but you're locked up in this boy's body, how many of you know that's not rational or logical thinking? There's a problem with that. And then it goes on to say in verse 29, he goes and list all these things that occur from the first giving over to the second giving over to the third giving over in verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. Um, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Folks, that is clearly, clearly a picture of what happens when God lets a nation go. Now, if you would, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings in the Old Testament chapter 17. When God is replaced with people's desires that contradict the truth of God, when people begin to try to worship God or at least what some Puritan writers would call the sin of mixture or the sin of mixing, that when you don't realize and you don't comprehend the importance of how God is a God that is indeed a jealous God. And what that implies is, in fact, five times in the Old Testament, in Exodus 20, verse 5, also in chapter 34, verse 14, in Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, and also in chapter 5, verse 9, and chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord says repeatedly, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. I am a jealous God. 
So what does he mean by that? I believe it means basically God is passionate to protect what belongs to him. Namely, his glory and his honor. He will not allow another to have the glory that is his alone. So when you look at all the things we shared by way of introduction, the case about no father in the home, the 60s, the 70s, leading up to now where we're living today in 2022, and you look at Romans chapter 1, and then not to mention 2 Timothy chapter 3 about the perilous times where men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, and the host of other texts that deal with what would be pretty much the prominent thing and the most obvious thing that would be happening in a nation when again God indeed is judging it or he has abandoned it because they have abandoned him and no longer look at him and trust him when it comes to his glory and his honor. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 42, listen to this. Isaiah 42 verse 8 is another good text about God being worshipped. He said in verse 8 of Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, Lord there is Yahweh, I am, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. In other words, I am not going to give my thoughts or even my approval in any way shape or form when you put anything that's of a graven nature or image or any idol above me because I am Yahweh that's my name and I will not give my glory to anyone or anything else it is to say that we live our lives for the glory of God it's all that matters that's all that matters and he said the same thing again in Isaiah 48, verse 11, that I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, and I will give my glory to no other. I don't know how far I'm going to get with this, so just be patient with me. We'll go as far as we can, and then, Lord willing, sometime in the future, if I have another opportunity to preach, we'll get back to it. When we come to 1 Kings, we see some very similar things happening in Israel, and we see a prophet by the name of Elijah. And when you look at chapter 17, beginning of verse 1, this particular chapter speaks about how Elijah prophesies and predicts a serious drought. Verse 1 says, Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead said to Ahab, who was the king at the time, As the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Here is Yahweh's prophet, Elijah, speaking the word of the Lord that's bringing judgment to these people. Then verse 2 says, The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook, Sherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. And as you go further down in chapter 17, you see where Elijah raises the widow's son. She provides for him Food and God providentially by his power provides an ongoing supply of water and oil and a flowery substance to feed her because again there, there's a famine in the land there's no rain and then you see too where he actually raised her son the widow's son from the dead Elijah did that so this is actually the first place in the entire Bible that Elijah's mentioned. His name means, my God is Yahweh. Elijah's name means, my God is Yahweh. 
We don't have anything in Scripture about the earlier part of his life. It's like he just all of a sudden just shows up on the scene here in chapter 17. But he is indeed the prophet of Yahweh. In fact, Elijah is spoken of in the New Testament more than any other prophets, any other prophets in Scripture. His name is mentioned more in the New Testament than any other prophet or prophets in Scripture. It was on the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John was there with Christ when he was transfigured. And who showed up with Jesus? Who was it? Moses and Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 9 through 14, it even says that Elijah, when he dies, or he didn't actually die, him or Enoch didn't actually die as we know it, but he gets to leave and go to heaven in a whirlwind in a chariot that's a fire. It's interesting that in Matthew 16, 14, when Jesus was taking a consensus in Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people or who do men say that I am? Remember what they said? Well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you are Elijah or maybe even Jeremiah. And then in James chapter 5 is another powerful verse about Elijah that, again, James even uses talking about prayer where it says here in James chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, he was a human being. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. But then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. This will probably be about as far as I get with this. But it would be a good place to bring this message into a close here within a few minutes. When you look at 1 Kings chapter 18 verse 36. This verse right here about Elijah and his prayer. Which is the prayer he prays before as he challenged the prophets of Baal. When it came to, again, understanding how, again, they would find out who the God is who will answer by fire on the altar that had been erected here. When, again, the 450 prophets of Baal showed up, again, with Elijah being there, and then there comes the challenge of what he gives them back there in verse 24 of chapter 18, where it says, Then you call in the name of your God, and I'll call in the name of the Lord, Yahweh, and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people said, That is a good idea. But when he begins to pray, before the fire fell, and there's more to be said about this, but this must be understood or at least put in perspective that really sets up this entire miraculous story about how God so powerfully used this prophet of God named Elijah. And here's the reason why he did. Obviously, he chose him. Obviously, he called him. Obviously, he was the spokesperson. He was the the mouthpiece that would speak on behalf of Yahweh to Israel. But what is clearly seen here without a doubt is that is significant in Elijah's life is what is seen in these words. And notice what it says, verse 36. At the time of the offering, 1 Kings chapter 18, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah, the prophet, came near and said, O Lord, that's Yahweh, O Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Today, today, let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I've done all these things at your word. First of all, what is obvious here in this prayer about Elijah, and again, this must be 
put in the context of this, this narrative here that will really bring it all together and see how God in the midst of judgment, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of when you have a lack of fathers in the home, when you have denominations that began with a strong commitment to Scripture, but all of a sudden they are beginning to waver and vacillate and wander away from the truth. I mean, did you ever think that the time would come in the SBC that they would put together a committee to try their best to understand or come to the place of understanding what a pastor is or what Scripture says about a pastor? And I'm thinking, read 1st, 2nd Timothy. Read Titus. It clearly tells you what it says. But somehow we have come to the place that we might think that there's a difference between the gift of a pastor and the office of a pastor. Ephesians 4.11 says he gave some apostles, prophets, pastors evangelists, teachers to the body of Christ. He makes reference to gifts. But never is that in the context of someone having a gift of being a pastor that would not at the same time simultaneously have the gift or the office of being a pastor, elder, or bishop of overseer of a local church. And it was always seen in the gender of a man. That's what it's coming down to. Rewriting, reordering the order that God has established for the local church. And keep in mind, we mentioned it a moment ago, when Paul wrote that first letter to Timothy, it was a letter to bring correction because there were serious problems in the church in Ephesus. There was a problem with leadership. There was a problem with false teaching. There was an issue with money. I mean, you name it, there were things there that needed to be corrected. And Paul knew he needed to write that letter to Timothy to get the house of the Lord in order. And that's when he said in 1 Timothy 3.15, he says, The reason why I'm writing these things to you is so that you will know how one is to conduct himself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. That's not hard to see, is it? And again, I'm looking at this text here about the life of Elijah and what he begins to pray before, again, the prophets of Baal had done all they had done, you know, calling on their gods. And especially when you understand that the that the God or the, the God of Baal was the God of rain, the God of seasons, the God of fire, the God of fertility. I mean, he had a host of things he was God of. So first of all, their God, Baal, had really let them down because the God who provided the rain, it hadn't rained in three and a half years. And now to make no mistake about it, Elijah's going to say, well, you know what? We're going to find out who truly the God is by the one who answers by fire. And so when they erected and rebuilt the altar and put the offerings on there, they actually dug a trench or a ditch around the altar. He said, fill the trench up with water. And I'm thinking there's been a famine. There's been a drought. It didn't rain for three and a half years. I wonder where they got the water. But he said, get the water and pour it in the, in the trench like the ditch around the altar. And then pour it on the altar, on the wood, on the sacrifice, on the animal. Don't do it once, but do it twice. Don't do it twice, but do it three times. In other words, it was soaking wet. He was going to make sure there would be nothing that would be a counterfeit or something that would be false. That would come in the way of finding out who the true God of Israel truly is. Yahweh God. And so Elijah had an extraordinary passion for the glory of God. That is seen here 
where he says, God, let it be known that you are God. I want to encourage you with something this afternoon. This is something we need to be praying. Folks, we've got to come together and understand the significance of prayer. Intercession. Crying out to God. Praying to God. I mean, even Habakkuk, when he saw how things were happening, when God gave the Chaldeans as a, as a people that would be the enemy of Israel and brought them against them, judging them, even in the book of Habakkuk, there's just three chapters in that, that small prophecy of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk talks about how that the Lord is, is angered. He says that all I see is iniquity, all I see is sin, and all I see is your anger. But then when you go over to chapter 3, Habakkuk says, Lord, would you revive your work in the midst of the years? Would you in your wrath remember mercy? I'm thinking that would be something very significant. I think we would pray. God, that even in your wrath... Your compassion, your mercy, would you remember it? Elijah said, God, would you let it be known that you're God? Would you let it be known that you're God in Israel? He had an extraordinary passion for the glory of God. How about your heart today? How about my heart today? What about in this nation? What about in homes? What about the homes that are fatherless? What about the perversions? What about the people that are, that are struggling with their sexuality? What about the people who believe that God made a mistake? I'm really a girl, but he trapped me in a boy's body. I mean, really, who made a mistake? Did God really make a mistake? Did God mess up? What could possibly be anything that could somehow have a profound effect on that kind of nonsense, that kind of thinking, that kind of behavior. I believe it would be a people like Elijah, God today in Israel. Through Ahab the king, who was self-serving, his wife Jezebel, who was anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible, herself being self-serving in what she did, Based on the approval of her husband Ahab, who, again, the scripture says, did more wicked before God and did more to provoke God than any other king before him. Ahab. And then condoning and giving her the go ahead to literally make the religion, the state religion of Israel, the worship of Baal. And all the chaos and all of the the frustration, all of the sin, all of the things that are going on. Elijah said, God, would you just please, please God, would you let it be known today that you're God? That's my prayer. I hope it's your prayer. And then he said that, that, that I am your servant. That is to say that Elijah demonstrated sincere humility in knowing whom he belonged to. When the ultimate priority and the most preeminent thing in your mind and your heart is the glory of God. What captures that and what causes that thought to prevail in your thinking is knowing who you belong to. Knowing who you belong to. That I am your servant, he said. Would you let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant? The Hebrew there is ebed. It is translated slave like, slave like doulos in the New Testament. In other words, Elijah demonstrated sincere humility in knowing whom he belonged. He was the slave, the servant of Yahweh. Elijah recognized Yahweh's complete ownership of his life. And then thirdly, he says, not only God, would you let it be known that you're God in Israel, that you indeed would put on display your glory, and that it be known that I'm your servant, I belong to you. You have complete, total ownership of my life. 
But Elijah too was completely surrendered through obedience to the command of Yahweh. He says, God, let it be known I've done all these things at your word. At your word. A people of obedience. A people that obey God. A people that have a passion for his glory. A people who acknowledge complete ownership of their life being to the Lord. That I've done all these things at your word. That sets up this narrative. And you see what happens in the end. The true God, Yahweh, answered by fire. Verse 38 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell. When did it fall? In this case, in this narrative, is when he prayed. When he prayed. God, let it be known that you're God. Let it be known that I belong to you. And let it be known that everything I'm doing, I'm doing in obedience to you. And in verse 37, answer me, O Lord. Answer me, O Yahweh. Answer me that these people may know that you, O Lord, you, Yahweh, are God. And that you have turned their heart back again. And then the fire fell. And consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. And licked up the water that was in the trench. Not once, not twice, but three times. They doused the altar. They filled the ditch up around it with water. The fire was so intense. The fire that came. Yahweh, Yahweh put on display His glory. Yahweh put on display the fire from heaven. God did this. Yahweh did this. And licked up the water that was in the trench, verse 39, when all the people saw it. When all the people saw the fire come down from heaven. And keep in mind, fire for them was not a strange occurrence. The burning bush that burned was not consumed. They called Moses out. The pillar of fire that led the people of Israel by night and the cloud by day. The fire that filled The presence of God that filled even Solomon's temple that when it says, and God came down and filled the place with his presence, it was in the form of fire. So this is not something that was strange to them, but there was something about this fire that came from Yahweh and not the false prophets of Baal that actually caused these people to say it. They fell on their face. They worshipped. And they worshipped. When the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord Yahweh, He is God. The Lord Yahweh, He is God. Wow, my time's up. Folks, I know I gave you like back in the day when we would hunt birds. We would hunt hunt them with birdshot and those pellets would scatter That's pretty much what I've given you this afternoon, but I just want you to know in the midst of the darkness, the chaos, the difficulty, even God's divine judgment, even things we're seeing happening in this world today, some of this has gone so far there's no turning back. Once God starts it, He completes it. Every how long He deems it necessary to carry it on, He does so. But even in the midst of the drought and the famine, when it had not rained three and a half years, James said it, he prayed it rained three and a half years, he prayed again, and it did rain. There was a famine, there was no water. But they found out who the only true God is, and there could be no compromise and no agreement between Baal and Yahweh. And Yahweh was the one that put on display his glory, and the fire fell. And the people saw it, and they fell on their faces, and they said, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. Father, thank You for Your Word, Your blessings, Your glory, Your honor. God, we're so thankful for Your Word, Your truth, a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. The truth. God, may that be our heart as it was with Elijah. God, let it be known that you're Yahweh, you're you're the Lord.
your glory is all that matters. And that I belong to you. And that I do what I do in obedience to you. Jesus, you said, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? Thank you, Lord. And we pray that in a time of your wrath, you would, God, remember mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Closing him is we will glorify. No, that's not it. That is it, pardon me. That's right, okay, 97. Let's stand together. We will glorify the King of kings. We will glorify the Lamb. We will glorify the Lord of lords, who is the great I Am. Lord Jehovah reigns in majesty. We will bow before His throne. We will worship Him in righteousness. We will worship Him alone. He is Lord of heaven and Lord of earth. He is Lord of all who live. He is Lord above the universe. All praise to Him we give. Hallelujah to the King of kings. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Hallelujah to the Lord of lords, who is the great I Am. Amen. Thank you for the message, Pastor David, and thank